0: The University of Connecticut is a pioneering body of research and innovation. This podcast brings you the stories, the motivations, the passions possessed by the people behind this success. Welcome to UConn In Vivo. Today we talk to Aaron Young and Kyle Baumbauer, two professors from the School of Nursing who study arguably the most relatable of human experiences, pain. Professor Young tackles this issue from a genetic standpoint whereas Professor Bombauer is parsing out the neural networks and modifications involved in pain pathology. Listen as this power couple teaches us about everything from science, relationships, and life. All right, so let's get started. Dr. Kyle Bombauer, Dr. Aaron Young, Victor, thank you all for being here. You both are professors in the School of Nursing, correct? Correct. And you both study pain. I read somewhere, Kyle, you're more of a pain physiologist, whereas, Aaron, you're more of a pain geneticist, but you both have the same background in this field. Can you talk a little bit about the work you do and the current applications or the current status of pain research?
1: The work that I'm most interested in is really broad. I think I am would basically characterize what I do as being interested in how inflammation and nerve injury affects pain processing. And where I tend to focus is out in the peripheral nervous system. And the reason for that is that's really where everything comes in normally, except mm-hmm. for some few instances where if you have a stroke or a spinal cord injury, something like that. I think that basically captures kind of the breadth of what we do. Anything that has something to do with inflammation and uh, nerve injury itself. And we do a lot of work with understanding how gene expression controls all of this, Mm -hmm. specific molecules, proteins that control different aspects of pain and sensitivity. Within the spinal cord realm, that's really where my love affair is. I've been studying that for about... I don't know 20 years Go just ahead. about <laughs> somewhere around there and that's been kind of a circuitous route how I got here but where we focus right now is how the peripheral neurons contribute to pain following spinal cord injury and pain following spinal cord injury is kind of a weird thing to think about because normally when you think about spinal cord injury you think people are numb mm-hmm. uh, below the level of the injury in fact people while they have disrupted normal somatosensory input so they can't feel touch, for example, their feet will burn pretty much all the time. And so we try to understand what happens in the peripheral nervous system that contributes to that. Sure. And in particular, what's happening in the very acute phases of the injury when people can't tell you that they hurt. But what we've found in our work is that there are a lot of changes that happen kind of under that mask of inability to respond, Mm -hmm. that is setting the nervous system up to develop chronic, untreatable pain.
0: Evolutionarily, that doesn't seem to be advantageous to develop that chronic pain, right? So this is a domino effect of sorts, that something clicks and then from there things get progressively worse, right? There's no body adaptation?
1: Right. It's almost as if the processes that allow chronic pain to develop have hijacked the normal pain system. Right. In the acute pain system, that's protective that tells you something bad happened here you need to go into your cave and lick your wounds. Whereas chronic pain it just persists even in the absence of the injury and so what tends to be weird about chronic pain is that you can have an injury and then you'll have some sensitivity that spreads beyond that injury and you have tissue that's never been damaged mm-hmm. that becomes painful. Right. And that's kind of what we look at with spinal cord injury, is that tissue that's never been damaged is now hurting. And there's been no work that can find any evolutionary relevance to this. And it's hard to argue or imagine why this would be evolutionarily selected for Mm -hmm. instead of it being a byproduct of evolution. Sure.
0: And I'm sure the current approach is try to understand the genetic underpinnings of the certain increase in pain or, or the adaptation or development of chronic pain, right? You can look at which tissues are increasing certain gene expression, right?
2: Absolutely. We say we a lot, I think it sounds like the royal we, but it's because we collaborate so much. Mm -hmm. And we've trained sort of to complement each other so that we always have someone to go to to talk about the things that we don't necessarily do every day. But I'm interested in all kinds of pain and really in the genetic factors that contribute to increased susceptibility. So who's gonna have more pain when they break their leg versus less. And in some ways that sort of begs the question, how do we turn people who are very sensitive into people who are not so sensitive, Mm -hmm. right? We could Mm -hmm. turn everyone into these, like, you know, brutes who have no pain and can just keep going, which is also probably not healthy. That's a different podcast. But (laughs) Most recently, I've been looking at the factors that contribute to irritable bowel syndrome, and it's different from other pain disorders in that it's not really a symptom. Pain isn't really a symptom in Mm -hmm. IBS. It's the whole shebang, right? So in irritable bowel syndrome, unlike diseases like Crohn's disease and colitis, you can't have ongoing inflammation. If you have inflammation, it's not IBS. You have to have pain and altered bowel habits. So constipation or diarrhea or both. But the primary unifying symptom is pain. And so I'm interested in why do some people develop this syndrome in which they get pain signals that come in from the bowel, even during normal function. Normally you should not be aware of what's going on Mm -hmm. in your bowels. That's sort of the point of them. (laughs) You don't have to think about it. They just do their job. But in the case of IBS, you get painful signals to sometimes normal bowel function. So I'm interested in what are the factors that contribute to that. Why might some people develop IBS as well as other chronic pain syndromes like Mm -hmm. fibromyalgia, which also is of unknown etiology. So that's really where I focus. But I'm also interested in things like sex differences, right? Sex isn't just a genetic phenomenon, right? It's it's a complicated issue. But sometimes there are genetic risk factors that are only revealed for one sex versus the other. So to me, that's really exciting because it means that we could start to precisely tailor treatments to your sex, your background, your particular genetic susceptibility so that we could really treat the pain where it's coming from as opposed to, you know, trying to go around it by using things like opioids, which we all, I think, accept at this point are, are problematic so, you know, we're trying to get away from the need for something like that, which really just turns the Mm -hmm. volume down on all that information coming in from the periphery. It changes the way that the cells behave, but it doesn't really change those pain processes. So that's really kind of our focus is to get away from that and find some better options.
0: Pain itself is complex, but it's also subjective to a degree, right? So I imagine it must be really difficult both with human patients as well as I know you have a mouse model for IBS. to read out the level of pain to interpret the effectiveness of certain pain strategies. Can you talk about the difficulty and the approaches you take to try to counteract that problem?
2: We try really hard to quantify pain Mm -hmm. uh, in people and in animals, and there are pretty good ways of doing that. I think one of the things that is problematic is that people will say off the bat pain is subjective so you can't really treat it we should try to treat something else or you know or it's you know you can't really come up with a good pain treatment because it's a subjective experience but or um, if we
1: cure the pain the cancer, the pain will go away. Right we, exactly. yeah.
2: which we know absolutely does not work. <laughs> so, I mean, not absolutely, but for a vast majority of people, getting rid of their disease will make some difference in their pain, but it may not get rid of it. But yeah, man, pain's cranky, right It's hard to deal with. And we actually sort of work really hard to make sure that what we're measuring in the animal models actually looks like what clinical, you know populations report. So if the clinical group says, I have pain when I have bowel distension, then we need to be able to distend the bowel in a quantifiable way or in a controlled way, and we need to be able to measure the outcome, and Mm -hmm. that's what we do. Now, that might sound really specific, right? (laughs) But in our minds, when a behavior is more quantifiable, more specific, we actually can ask better questions about it in a more controlled way, so that's one of the things we do.
1: And in our lab, in my area of research, I should say, because it's all our lab, we ask a lot of questions about nervous, output. So how do the neurons change the way that they, for lack of a better word, behave? So Mm -hmm. their firing patterns, how do they change the actual potentials? How many are there? What's different about them? Which types of neurons are firing versus not firing? And so we ask about neural response properties. But in the behavioral world, when we're doing that kind of work, we're asking things about how does an animal respond to mechanical stimulation, touch, increased mechanical pressure or heat or cold which there's some debate about what that really means there's a problem with an animal when you're doing pain work and that you can't say how do you feel exactly right mm-hmm. and so there are different methods that people have developed that allow you to get around that mm-hmm. and to get it more of a true pain kind of response but even in the human world it becomes difficult because I think everybody is familiar with going to the doctor and they say on a scale of frowny face to smiley face or one to 10, what's your pain? And the idea would be that across everybody or even within the same person that the number you assign to your pain would dictate the treatment, right? So if you're a five, maybe you get an aspirin. If you're a 10, you need some anesthesia mm-hmm. and a surgical procedure or something. right? Uh, you need some midazolans.
0: I was just talking to somebody about that yesterday. I was at physical therapy, and they're asking me what my pain was, and I said, a 3? I don't know. I can imagine it's a lot worse. And then the guy next to me says, a 9. And I was thinking, if it was a 9, I would call 911. <laughs> like, right. right, yeah, like, That's, I need help now. The threshold yourself from 1 to 10 is completely different on a person-to-person and basis.
1: It, d- and it would also depend where the pain is, too. So I mm-hmm. gave a lecture to a group of clinicians, a bunch of physicians, how treatment of pain is done all wrong you know, because I'm a PhD and I know how to treat mm-hmm. people. And, and maybe a little oppositional. Right. And just yeah. gonna say that. Just <laughs> maybe that maybe I like to start arguments <laughs> here and there. Sure. Um, but one of the issues was this topic of how do you know what the pain level is of any given patient. And it came down to this 1 to 10 issue. And the director of the center came to me and said, I've had this thought in my mind at a patient who came in with chest pain, and I asked them to rate their pain on a scale from 1 to 10, and the patient said 14. Which, for some reason, the physician found that really interesting and hard to understand. Right. She then asked the patient to relay the number if that pain was in their toe, and the patient said two. That's interesting. And it was interesting for two reasons one, that the patient could understand, and the doctor was quick enough to ask, Tell me about how this relates. And also that you have a person who's in cardiac distress and you're gonna ask them about their foot, right? right? So <laughs> uh, that, those things were interesting to me. But she asked me to interpret that for her and I said, well, it's about anxiety, mm-hmm. right? And when a patient comes in experiencing chest pain, they think they're going to die, right? right? Mm-hmm. If you have pain in your toe, eh, you know, cut it off. I don't need this thing exactly. anymore, anyway, right? It's not an essential piece of your body for survival. Whereas your heart, eh, you kind of need that thing around mm-hmm. for a while. so it's subjective because there's a lot of factors that feed into this rating that we are not good at assessing either in people or in animals. And so it doesn't matter what you're looking at, it all becomes hard. And I think from my background as a physiologist, when we talk to our colleagues who study humans and they look at imaging results from say like an MRI or an fMRI, looking at brain activity, for me I just say, record from the neuron Mm -hmm. and let's see how it's behaving, how it's firing. That tells you everything you need to know. Whereas they would say, no, you need to know about the networks. And then I come back and say, well, you know, in any given unit on that image, you're talking about three square millimeters of brain space and how many neurons are in three square millimeters. And so you lose the rest, you know. So the whole point of that is there's a lot of caveats and difficulties in what you're asking about pain because pain is so complex. There's many layers to it. Yeah. And I actually
2: think about it as... Everybody talks about intersectionality, right? Like we're all sort of a whole made up of all these individual pieces. And if you think about that, there are lots of differences based on ethnicity, gender, sort of your background that are going to affect how likely you are to report pain and how you express that pain. And also, interestingly, how healthcare professionals perceive your reports of that pain, right? We know that there's lots of unconscious biases that come in. And so not only is the reporting of pain mm-hmm. pretty interesting and complicated on its own, but also the receipt and processing of that report of pain. Because all the physicians, all the nurses, everybody, even researchers, we bring all of our own intersectional goodness and badness with us. And so I think it's really interesting because we're trying to break pain down into its component pieces so that we can study each one separately because we feel like they're more tightly controlled than getting a report. Mm -hmm. But what I always go back to is talking to my clinical colleagues. We collaborate on this if my mouse sort of hunches over and bends its abdomen as though it has an upset stomach, does that look like what your patients report, or do they report something else? You know, and mm-hmm. Because in my mind, the animal model is really only as good as its ability to reflect what's happening in that, because really all we care about as humans is what's happening in people. Right? <laughs> I mean, we're very self-centered in that way. <laughs> that to me is really important. I think we both try to, you know, we've gone out into the community, we've talked to people who are experiencing spinal cord injury-induced pain. I am interested in visceral pain, so pain in the abdominal Mm -hmm. organs after spinal cord injury because we really have no idea what's going on there. And it substantially decreases quality of life for people with spinal cord injury. So that's one of the intersectional places where Kyle and I overlap quite a bit. So I went out and met with someone in the community who has spinal cord injury, who suffers from visceral pain. It's really hard to treat. And he was willing to talk to me about what that feels like. And we need those partnerships in order to be able to actually make sense of what we see because we get a lot of really exciting data then we have to figure out how that applies to the human condition, and and some of that's conjecture, and some of it's really about application. So right. it's exciting. In like a similar way to the story that you were mentioning earlier, Kyle, with that patient and the pain in the chest versus their toe, so there's a lot of like psychology, the attitude behind how they're approaching this pain that seems important. And I know Aaron, you've done some research regarding social distress and how that affects a patient's response to pain. So what did you learn from that research? Stress is bad, except when (laughs) it's good. (laughs) So acute stress tends to decrease our sensitivity to pain. You have someone have, especially physical stressors, we all know the stories about people who are playing in a football game and they break their ankle and then they don't even realize it until they get off the field because they haven't had the pain, right? They have an inhibition of pain. Mm -hmm. And some of that's inhibition of inflammation. Again, it's, you know, a bigger story than that, but that's sort of the gist. With chronic stress, what you see is that those regulatory processes don't really work in the same way. And so you can have chronic stress that exacerbates a painful condition, which we can all imagine, right? A lot of people who have Um, irritable bowel syndrome or headache chronic headache those kinds of things they're exacerbated by stress so they'll have a flare-up during a stressful period so when everyone's immune system is in the toilet over finals week right (laughs) everyone who has a chronic pain condition is also suffering immensely and we were really interested in social stress because we thought there's not a whole lot of time as a human being that we're like fighting off a tiger in the jungle but we are often made to speak in front of a group or count backwards from 100 in front of an audience you know those things are about judgment <laughs> and social <laughs> and social stuff so those are very stressful so the lab that I was in which was run at Texas A&M University by Dr. Barry Mahar. she's really interested in animal models of social distress as well as mimicking that in the human condition so modeling stress in the lab and that's exactly what we did and probably the most interesting thing that I took away from that is that there are lots of different things that stress us out and they all do different things in the body which means that it's not like stress is bad, I'm okay, right? It's not always bad, sometimes mm-hmm. it's actually beneficial. And that it can have a very different impact depending on why you might have pain. If you have an inflammatory condition, right, then short-term stress is immunosuppressive. Right. It turns out that your body's really good at trying to get around those things. So then the pain goes away for a little while, but then your body says, oh no, we don't need to be dominated by your stress hormones anymore. We're not gonna allow you to downregulate us. And so then you have this re-emergence of inflammation, but now, A lot of drugs that would act on that normal process can't decrease your pain drugs like prednisone decrease pain because they are treating inflammation if your body no longer responds to them you can just drown yourself in it they're Mm -hmm. never gonna do anything and so there's a lot of really interesting complexity to that Mm -hmm. and also human beings and animals too we are the accumulation of our entire lifetimes experience right so you're not just shaped by what's stressing you out right now. Like, I'm not just stressed out by the idea that I might sound bad on the mic, right? (laughs) I'm also stressed out by, like, that time in third grade where I sang into a microphone and it sounded really squeaky, and that was horrible, right? Like, so you have this sort of building stress background, and Mm -hmm. also for the good stuff, right? You also have good things that build up. But I just find it really interesting that we, from almost the moment of entering the world, we start to accumulate this experience that shapes who we are as... People, but also as pain experiencers. Right.
0: Well, that adds to the subjectivity, right? Each person's reference point is different inherently mm-hmm. based on the pain that they've experienced throughout.
1: But I would probably argue that that set point isn't mm-hmm. necessarily entirely psychological, right? Because there are physical components, physiological sure, components definitely. to it. And there's a lot of work that Mariah Fitzgerald did, Aaron did some of this work as well where you can injure, say, a newborn, just by a procedure that they would normally have in the hospital, a heel stick, Mm -hmm. which isn't as nice as that sounds. It's kind of horrific. What is it? A heel stick, they draw blood to do all of the genetic testing, and it's more of a lancing. It's a cut on the heel. But even just something as small as that changes sensitivity for a lifetime. Really? To injection, pain, and all kinds of things. And so it's not just the psychological impact of what you've experienced. It certainly is part Mm -hmm. of the equation, but it's also the physiological part of it. The neurons change. The nervous system changes. In young humans and in animals, the nervous system starts out hyperexcitable. For people who do physiology, we love doing recordings from young animals because lots of neurons are firing and they're easy to record from. But what that means in terms of pain is that because it's hyperexcitable, it's easily maintained in that state should an injury occur early on. And it changes everything. It changes the set point.
2: Mm-hmm. You've had a lot of models of inflammatory bowel disease or even like vulvodynia, other painful disorders that come from the abdominal structures, or even things from the distal limbs, the fingers and toes and stuff, the feet and hands. If you do something to a very young animal, you know, within the first few days of life, then you have a lot of downstream effects that are then altered. In some ways, you may not see it... Obviously, in behavioral change, but if you then have a second insult later on, so let's say that you do a heel lancet two days after birth, and then again they have an injury to the paw as an adult, they may actually have an increased response to that. So, you know, it has to be sort of unveiled by an additional challenge sometimes, Mm -hmm. but you really see that there's this now hyper responsiveness that was being masked.
1: How do you begin to parse out the relative contribution of the psychological versus the physiological understanding just? how important i guess that physiological component is
0: are we that, not
2: supposed to say we ignore one Yeah, <laughs> that, that's not what we do. <laughs> never we, mind we Just ignore kidding. one right um, and
1: so a lot of our work with physiological preparations are reduced so that it's neurons mm-hmm. and not all of the other components that go into making a whole animal you know you can't do that really well with humans you kind of have to have the whole human mm-hmm. and and those they
2: don't want to give up their
1: neurons. We've yeah. tried. <laughs> no one g- signs up for that study. Yeah, Nobody's <laughs> so donating selfish. neurons. All yeah. right. So we can get around that in some ways. But when you're dealing with behavior, that is certainly a question. And I think from my background in psychology, all of my degrees are in psychology. I don't do a whole lot of what I was trained in <laughs> that anymore. But that certainly has shaped the way that I look at what I do now. But the history of psychology is such that we came out of a time period where what's inside the skull is treated as a black box, and whatever happens in there doesn't matter, sort of ignoring the importance of cognitive processes. And so there was this era that we're coming out of in the pain world where we would say, okay, what we can do to the animal to measure evoked sensitivity, so how hard I press on the paw, or how much I heat the tail, or how much I cool the tail, that tells us about pain, but now people are saying that's not true, right? it matters what the animal's thinking and how that really influences their perception of the world, their perception of their pain. And there's also these philosophical debates about are animals really sentient? Do they experience Mm -hmm. anything Mm -hmm. at all? And I think those kinds of arguments are going away. And now we're trying to deal with in a lot of different fields, this very issue of experience versus physiological inputs. And this is the top-down versus bottom-up argument that is pervasive in any biological sciences. What matters more? And for us, working on a bottom-up kind of approach, and our colleagues who work on a more top-down kind of approach, what's the brain doing, and how does that change everything downstream of that? And I'm asking, okay, how does a cell feed into a network, and then how does that network you know, ultimately emerge into cognition? how do they meet and can we find the point at which they meet and then all of this manifest and it's really hard to do that and Mm -hmm. so the question you ask is a hard one to answer (laughs) because there is no great answer and none of us do it really well (laughs) right and so we just tend to wave hands say don't pay attention (laughs) to (laughs) the feelings behind the curtain but it's a really important issue and we try our best to control all of the things in the lab that we can control the time of day, the test, or all of those things that influence the way that the animal experiences the events. We pre-expose them to all of the apparatus that we use and all those kind of things that you would do in good experiments to try to control all of the different variables. But you can't control what's going on in the animal's head. And you can't control what's going on in the human's head either. And you really don't want to, right? Even though it sucks as a scientific variable to try to ignore that, you don't want to influence that particular variable because you want to know about what's pain. And then right. average those things over time so you can look what it's what it looks like. And um, I'm not going to answer your question. <laughs> I'm just going to no. talk for <laughs> a long time until you, you don't make That's me totally commit MO. to... Just talk until you fall asleep. Yeah, no talk Fine, until you don't require me to <laughs> commit I, to anything.
2: Actually, he's sitting here talking about this and I'm thinking about all of our different colleagues who study different pieces. So we're both members of national and international pain-focused research organizations Mm -hmm. that do research education Mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And one of the things that I love about attending those meetings is that you talk to people who approach pain measurement, pain conceptualization, pain modeling from a very different point of view, and you think, how does that apply to what I'm doing? How are those things problematic for me? How can I integrate them to make a more comprehensive, sort of holistic view of what I'm actually trying to measure? And that gets back to sort of the clinical question, right? Are we measuring just behavior? Are we measuring behavior that's modified by some other context variables within the animal? So I think in the animal research, we can control that stuff a lot better, right? They, their lives aren't very exciting. so <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> they, don't, they don't get taken on walks. So they don't have a ton of experience to draw on, but I mm-hmm. think that we can still make some really important sort of applications of what we find in the animals to the clinical condition because we are really understanding the fundamental processes that are responsible for generating and maintaining pain their modulation and interpretation is the part we don't always do ourselves, but we really try to partner with clinical colleagues who do that. To me it's really important. Pain is one of those things. It's not like some other, you know, areas of science that are difficult to translate. Everybody <laughs> knows what pain is. You're like, I got this word. I know that. Right. right. I know what that means. So it's a universal experience that we you know, we really have to kind of do our best to do diligence.
1: We've been studying or trying to understand pain and you know, suffering since humans have been around. And this is probably one of the longest thought about issues throughout our history is why do we have to experience pain or suffer as part of our existence? And we're getting to a point now in the scientific realm where the measurement devices and instruments that we're using are changing radically and people are coming up with new and inventive ways to assess pain in humans and in animals. But when you think about a patient population, we now have a gajillion assessments that you can give to any one person. And you could have a person sitting in a room for four months just asking them questions <laughs> and how to rate stuff. They're like my and appendix personality. <laughs> <already>. Sorry. It's, <laughs> it's not feasible. You can't afford to pay a participant for that long. One of the difficulties we face when trying to gain access to clinical populations is these participants that are parts of other studies already have time taken up by what they're participating in and so a lot of our colleagues would say you can ask one question well, what question is that gonna be do you hurt <laughs> I mean th- that doesn't tell you anything helpful do you hurt <laughs> yes okay I'm gonna take your blood now I mean that's not I mean, so it's hard wow. to really do these things because as instruments develop and as things go along you have limited access and time to get these people One of the things that I always think about from my psychology background is the uh, Minnesota Multiphasic Inventory, the MMPI, which is this huge instrument that people use to assess a variety. I'm not even gonna try to tell you what it does because I don't know. I'm not that kind of person, I don't know that. (laughs) But I remember it's got hundreds of questions and if I've gotten that wrong, everybody who's an MMPI person, my apologies. But it's a very long inventory of questions and it takes a trained person a long time to administer that particular instrument. And when we're trying to do that in a pain population, your average doctors, you know, they want to keep their visits to 15 minutes. And if you're recruiting from a doctor's office or a hospital or whatever, you don't have hours. You have minutes. And so there are some people that have gotten really good at this. There's a group at North Carolina, they have this very large grant that's been funded forever called OPERA, and it's been in different iterations and they figured out a really easy way to tell whether or not someone's gonna develop chronic temporomandibular pain, and it's asking them, does it hurt when I poke you on your your trapezius muscle? And if the person says yes, they're gonna have chronic temporomandibular pain, and then they take those people, and they do all kinds of studies, (laughs) and that's vastly, under describing what that study it's a little pokey pokey and then we understand everything about pain
0: um but just like that yeah, yeah. just like that and it works out. every time every time totally, no like so,
2: took a day is, but I, you want to go ahead yeah i was gonna say i do think that our clinical like colleagues are starting i've found this especially working with connecticut children's that they are making room for discovery of pain mm-hmm. in their populations they are interested in first of all, figuring out why their patients have pain, because patients who have chronic pain are extremely difficult to treat, and they're mm-hmm. frustrating for physicians, which I know sounds ridiculous. You're like, yeah, I can understand why my pain is hard for you as a physician. But it really is because they want to decrease suffering. their compassionate, right. compassionate care mandates it, right? And so i found that they are willing to try and stretch to fit in questions that will help me to be able to better assess and measure their pain. And sometimes we find things that don't make them very happy <laughs> because they find that for instance, we you know, found in a clinical cohort that we're beginning to analyze now that many of the indicators of clinical disease severity had absolutely nothing to do with predicting pain reports wow. from these kids. It didn't matter if you had a full perforation of your bowel in ulcerative colitis, which by the time you have a full perforation of your bowel, it's an ouchie, mm-hmm. right? that's not good, or if you had sort of low-level initiating disease. The pain didn't seem to be related to that, which was very difficult, right? Because the thing that we are trained as healthcare professionals to treat that they are trained to do is to treat the disease. And so that suggests that getting rid of the disease isn't actually going to get rid of the pain, perhaps. So there's been a lot of conceptualization now of pain as a separate disease process. And I think now that that's kind of coming into awareness, people in research and also in clinical work are thinking, okay, this isn't just a sign of the thing we need to treat. This is actually a separate disease we should try to treat separately, because Mm -hmm. it may be that pain is not a great indicator of whether or not you're actively dying <laughs> it's, right. but you know, or, or actively need you know, major intervention. It's really something else because it is so complicated.
1: I would like to point out, though, that the thing you should take away from this conversation is that pain is not a predictor necessarily of dying. Yes, yes.
2: <laughs> yes. that's right. Yes, it
1: is not. <laughs> it predicts no. a lot of things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so what I want to segue into, which connects what we're talking about, is that neither of you are nurses by training, but you're both professors in the nursing department suggesting that the application of your work is in helping clinicians and nurses deal with patients experiencing pain, right? How to communicate and how to collaborate with these patients. Would you say that's an accurate statement?
1: I would say so, but I would say it goes the other way, really. So we were hired as an initiative that came down from the Board of Regents to start a pain center, and it was across departments. It just decided to be housed in the School of Nursing. And the nurses are very good at the clinical part of this. And when they hired us, they wanted a geneticist, Aaron, and Mm -hmm. a physiologist, me. And so he came in as part of this budding pain center. And to be quite honest and frank, I came in, I was going to tell all these people how things are, <laughs> straighten all these people out. Can you
2: imagine it? I know it's yeah. hard to imagine.
1: Uh, I'm going to be, you know, I'm the smartest guy in here, and everybody's wrong, and I'm going to fix this thing real quick. That didn't happen. And it turned out that our clinical colleagues have been wonderful, and we've learned a ton from them. And it turns out, I've started to appreciate the things that I would say in my grants and in my papers is that this is all clinically translatable and, you know, it's clinically important. And one of the things that I've learned is that, yes, it is translatable and it is important, but what we're looking at isn't necessarily what they're seeing in the clinic. And so we've learned a lot from our clinical colleagues on how to think about pain in a different way, how to model it in a different Mm -hmm. way, how to go after different questions. And so we've incorporated that into our research and I think we've grown as a result of that. Me in particular. But it's been a really interesting experience coming from a hardcore basic science lab bench kind of environment into a world where the variables aren't controlled. There is no black and it's white. It's messy. It's mm-hmm. messy. Like I said, you know, a person's not gonna say, Go ahead and poke my neurons you know, that doesn't happen. And so yeah, it's been an interesting experience and I think that in particular, I have been probably the greatest recipient of that interaction.
0: Would you say that the nursing field itself is evolving, or is this something specific to UConn? Absolutely.
2: Well, so I think UConn's ahead of the curve. Mm -hmm. I think that there are a few places that are doing this really well. University of Maryland, you know, there are some other schools that are doing a really good job. UCSF are doing a really good job of providing some basic science educational opportunities and also experience for people who are getting a PhD in nursing who are scientifically minded who want to be able to study the mechanisms of what they're seeing in the clinic I do think that a lot of times what happens is that we go beyond those borders right so I have a PhD in behavioral neuroscience from psychology department but my postdoc was in behavioral and cellular neuroscience and then I did a postdoc in genetics of pain, you don't necessarily have to stay in your lane, right? You can kind of get, you can kind of move around, you can, merge. you can merge, you can get off, you can hang out the rest stop. So you know, it, there's time, right? And so I think that what we're seeing is that interdisciplinary silos aren't as important as they used to be, and that really you have to be creative in how you go about training in order to have people who can ask the really exciting questions. Right. And so if we, we don't get too caught up in ourselves, if we can get over ourselves a little bit and get past those, some of those boundaries, I think you can do some really exciting things. So I think nursing is moving forward, right. physical therapy, we have an excellent rehab and kinesiology program here that's doing a lot of the same kind of translation, you know, across the translational spectrum from cells in a dish all the way up to people on a couch. You know? mm-hmm. so I, <laughs> I think that's, it's sort of a hallmark of, of good science. But they were really kind of ahead of some of the other schools of nursing, I sure. think. Yeah,
1: and they were very welcoming to have somebody that's outside of that realm come in and try to develop something new. And it's been a really good experience. And there are a couple other people in the School of Nursing that aren't nurses. But I would say we're a rarity.
2: To have like a bench scientist in the School of Nursing is not always right. common. Although people are so open to collaboration. And sometimes we have to say, I can't. I can't do this project right now, but I want to do it. So, can we talk after I finish this deadline? So, you start to develop some managing skills, which as a scientist, we're not trying to do at all. Like <laughs> interpersonal stuff? No. That's, that's not on the, the agenda, right, guys? Like, you're not. <laughs> 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 so, um, it's been really exciting to be able to sort of say, these are the important collaborations. This is what I'm going to do. And how can we work together to answer mm-hmm. something cool?
0: Are most of your collaborations through INCHIP? I know you're both part of that, correct? Uh, that's some. the Institution for Collaboration in and Health, Health Policy.
2: Yeah health intervention prevention. Mm-hmm. I think. Uh, so my lab is housed in the Department of Genetics and Genome Sciences where my actual bench, okay. physical lab spaces. Mm-hmm. But my collaborations have been primarily through the, the Pain Center mm-hmm. and also through Connecticut Children's. The gastroenterology group there has been awesome and really excited about the opportunity to do exactly what you're talking about, have somebody who can bring in that basic science piece. There's so many kids with belly pain. It kind of makes you sad, right? So, <laughs> so many kids with belly pain who don't obviously have something wrong with them, right? So there's a lot of research into why these kids have pain. And so, you know, I just see like research subjects, research subjects, research subjects, and, and it's exciting, but, you know, to see that this could potentially shape the way that we intervene with kids is really pretty cool.
0: So how did you come to study pain? How did both of you end up in this field?
1: <laughs> My answer is not planned. <laughs> um, everything I was trying to do didn't work out, and so I kind of, I literally in the unofficial meaning of the word literal, fell into this. (laughs) I started out wanting to be a clinical psychologist. And uh, as an undergrad, I took a lot of clinical psychology prep courses. I started working as a research assistant in the Florida Mental Health Institute, uh, part of a large international study looking at schizophrenics Mm -hmm. and quality of life, a lot of different issues. And so we went from different state agency to different state agency to hospitals, and all of we were interacting with schizophrenic patients, and it was really interesting what I quickly found that I wasn't necessarily interested in having a therapeutic relationship with somebody. I don't have that thing. Sure. That's not in my wheelhouse. But what I did understand at that point in time was that I wanted to look at mechanism. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see what was going on in the brain. So I went to my advisor, and I said, uh, I don't want to do this. Uh, How do we start looking at, you know, preparing me more for the biological portion of this? He said, you need to take three more years of a biology major. And I said, I don't want to do that. Um, So I went, and I graduated, and I went and worked out in the private sector for a little bit. Finished a sociology degree, because I was just trying to figure Mm -hmm. out what I was going to do. I became interested in, at the time, it was called sociobiology. And I figured, hey, I'll study... biological components of social behavior my advisor in the sociology department said that field's dead turns out it's not dead it's just called social neuroscience and i went to graduate school for what was at the time called a physiological psychology program which is now behavioral neuroscience and i started studying memory and learning and things like that and i wasn't really into running rats in a maze mm-hmm. and complex problem solving and I liked doing the memory work but it really wasn't the kind of thing that I got really excited about and so I started working in a lab that was studying spinal cord plasticity and function and we were looking at things that were kind of related to pain processing but not really and then as my graduate training progressed I became more interested in what's happening in the spinal cord that is related to pain and then I did my first postdoc and we started looking at how input from the peripheral nervous system modified the spinal cord and how that related to recovered from spinal cord injury. And I was happy to stay in that realm for the rest of my life, but there was a major event socially that you might remember, the crash. We had the recession in 2008. <laughs> okay. And so there was, you know, I think in 2007
0: there was...
2: Like 65 jobs. In, in neuroscience? And generally wow. in our field. And in 2008 wow. there were
0: From what? Four. You oh, know. from sixty-five but to like four? Yeah, four. Because
2: yeah. everybody was like, "Oh,
0: crap!" Right? Yeah, like you. <laughs> <laughs> so, were you two of the four? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, no, no, actually, They no, okay, <laughs> we weren't. <laughs> um, um,
1: so we stayed around for a while, and I transitioned from a very spinal-centric and kind of a behavioral learning, uh, behavioral neuroscience kind of background into a program in neurobiology.
2: Okay, but I have to say, in the meantime, <laughs> so we were married by this time. We've, we've been married a long time ready. um we at the time were super annoyed that we had to stay in a postdoc for longer it was like I am ready to be my own scientist and I'm gonna do this I big and um, and actually now on this side of it I want to go back and be like okay dial it back like right. like okay. you're at an yeah. 11 I need you to six mm-hmm. because we're totally different kinds of scientists when we got on the tenure track. So everybody thinks I'm going to get a graduate school and I'm going to do a postdoc and then I'm going to go straight to a tenure track job. And honestly, your postdoc is the time when you get to learn and build so that when you go and get a job as either a research scientist or whatever kind of job you're going to get after that so that you can actually do that stuff. So at the time when all of this is happening, we're like, (laughs) like freaking out. Yeah, like, how are we going to feed our child? (laughs) But now I'm I'm thankful. Mm Mm-hmm. That I have a lot of gratitude for that experience because I think that when we hit the when we hit the faculty track, it was like, Oh, I get it. I know exactly what I need to do. I don't have to
1: felt prepared. Yeah, I felt
2: prepared. Yeah. It and wasn't we, frightening.
1: We had really good mentorship and at the time. Oh, along the way. Particularly in my first postdoc, I don't think I appreciated how good my mentorship was. And I was progressing and learning and doing really well. And careful, I, I th- Jim
2: might hear this.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jim was awesome. But we thought, okay, you get a certain number of publications, and that's what the goal is. And then once you have that number of publications, you're ready for right. the job. You go out and get the job. And we did that, and then the jobs didn't come. Actually, the jobs evaporated. Nobody was getting jobs, and um, it was really hard. And then the recovery happened, and people started getting jobs again in academics. But Aaron and I decided to do... Additional postdocs, and
2: we have the added problem. You guys might have heard of this. Some of your listeners, the two-body problem.
0: What is this? So, um,
2: <laughs> if at all possible, you should attempt to not spend the rest of your life with someone else who's in academics.
0: I've heard <laughs> the opposite. I've heard that. So,
2: I mean, they they get you right. Like we we rock paper scissors during grant season. Like who's gonna make dinner? Like sometimes it's you know sometimes it's a restaurant. All of that part is amazing, but if you both intend to be gainfully employed. <laughs> um, particularly if you want to be employed in sort of an equitable mm-hmm. kind of thing if you both want to be at the same level like on the tenure track or whatever you can get dicey like yeah,
1: that was a real serious issue for us because in the outset of all of that we decided that we were going to maintain an equitable professional relationship like we didn't want to be in a situation where one person's career cannibalized the other
2: mm-hmm. and but, that does work for some people some people it's easy to pick one career to be primary versus the other, but that wasn't what- That wasn't
1: one of the things. And and opportunities like that presented themselves and have presented themselves since. And it just doesn't work. It wasn't, it's not in our plan. And so that made it more difficult for us to find faculty positions, because I don't know if you guys are aware, but neuroscience is expensive. It costs a lot of money genetics to do what is we do, and genetics. Everybody wants you to do <laughs> genome-wide association studies, and those things are, you know, a billion dollars. You know, it's really expensive to do. I it. did not, not actually. get a billion. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> they get really expensive, right? And um, you know, it's almost one grant's worth of funding to do this kind of work on one population of people. And uh, so, hiring somebody for one position is expensive enough, but to say we need two is even harder. Mm-hmm. And then there's other political issues that if you're in the same department, you can sway the politics because they everybody assumes that you're on the same side of the line. Which is hysterical. Which is, yeah. <laughs> I
2: mean, <laughs> the idea that we're on the same side of anything except this table is pretty funny. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> sorry. <coughs> we, sorry. We always that's agree. Okay.
1: There is no disagreement. We're all in. We're all in. That's well, it. Yeah.
0: I mean, I've heard RPI has told me that 90% of PhDs are married.
2: So I've heard it's really high for women in science in particular. So women are very likely to have a spouse who's in in another field, you know, another related field. Mm -hmm. I think it's definitely on the increase. I do think it's tough when you're at the same career level with anybody, right? If one of you has a job that's very mobile, you do something exciting in banking that you work from home, you can do that in Des Moines or you can do that in Manhattan. But if you are both in a specially trained field, then you need special equipment and you need resources and people who are willing to work with you and all that stuff. So it gets a little bit dicey, but um, this is like the the relationship junk, but like deciding early on that that was gonna be more important for us, cause I personally am not very good with not um, getting the things that I planned for. <laughs> so <laughs> I was like, yeah, this is not gonna work. So I felt like it was important that we have a standard that we were kind of shooting for and that we would wait for. And there were times in, Along the process, it was like, okay, but can we be done with that now? Maybe <laughs> focus on some other piece because this is uh, really hard and taking forever. Um, but, you know, we because we're equitable, equitable at work, we're also equitable at home, mm-hmm. right? We, we have two children. It translates. Yeah, right? Like, it's not any one person's job to load the dishwasher, unfortunately. Well,
1: the uh, Bombauer <laughs> brand dishwasher doesn't <laughs> yeah. work as well as the young <laughs> version. <but.
2: laughs> yeah, the young one is more on time. She plans to put, <laughs> put the pods in before bedtime, but... And, to the dishwasher but you know like I think that stuff is important right you have to mm-hmm. decide what's going to make you happy in your life and if your work is that important and you need certain things for your work you just have to be honest about it I think that's one of the only ways you can not be resentful at least for me sure but I wanted to be a scientist since I was like five I have a very different path
0: <laughs> yeah yeah explain your <laughs> <because> path
2: <laughs> so I have wanted to be a scientist or something in stem since I was I don't know five I think I read about mercury in school somewhere and I was like yep that's me. That's me about to do this. Done. <laughs> and it moved from different fields. You know, I think as you read new things and experience new things, you get excited about different stuff. But I started graduate school at UConn, actually, and my advisor moved to Canada. I was in PNB, right? Just where you guys are. Mm-hmm, yeah. and, um, and the faculty were great, but I had come specifically to work with this faculty member. And when he left, I thought, oh, poop. All right, now what? I mean, it was, it was a little more... Um, expletive written right, than sure. that, but you know, this is PG. I like to keep this PG today. And so I changed right away. Like, I think some people are really nervous. They get to graduate school and they think, even if I am miserable and want to die, I should definitely stay in this lab forever, and I'm gonna finish it. And if I quit, then it's like when you quit T-ball when you're a kid, everybody's gonna be mad at you. It's not like that, right? Like, you mm-hmm. can move, you can change. I mean, I wouldn't do it a lot. Mm. <laughs> like, I'd, I'd maybe just make it the one time. Right. But, um, but I moved to graduate school. That had sort of my second choice, which worked out great, and I have never regretted that move. And so then Kyle and I ended up, even though we didn't plan it this way, and we had been we had been dating for years before this. So mm-hmm. We went to the same lab, which. People will also be like, dang, that is a lot of together. That's risky. Right? Yeah, like, uh. But it worked out great, because we were only in competition with each other.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> and, it's uh, not n- competition when I'm always winning. Yeah, right, <laughs> but neither one of us are good at losing. Right, yeah,
2: that's gonna come back to you later. So, um, we, <laughs> so we end up working really hard, and we get out of graduate school, and the, it, it sort of unfolds. And my research started out in inflammation and spinal cord injury, and I just happened to see this interesting pain effect and thought, okay, that's actually really exciting. I want to start studying that. So in some ways, you don't just do the studies that make up your master's and your dissertation, mm-hmm. right? You do other studies, and sometimes those become really exciting. A side project can become your whole program of research. So we were really open to that experience of kind of doing some things on the side. And as we were working on our main experiment, I was so incredibly fortunate. to My first postdoc at Texas A&M. I worked in a lab that did human and animal work with equal dedication and we were really trying to answer some of the same kinds of questions, but in two different ways. And it was really eye-opening. In all the complexities that have to do with pain, you know, they were were like in the forefront, right? And then Mm. in all the complexities that have to do with pain, you know, they were were like in the forefront. And that's where I started doing more molecular work. And we started seeing that the things that stressed out some of the mice, you know, like one strain of mouse would be stressed out after an hour. They'd have really high stress hormone levels, but another strain of mouse you could, Put them in the exact same stressful environment, and they would be like asleep, <laughs> or you know, licking their tail for like a half an responsive. hour. They just mm-hmm. so the strain differences at the time were like, stop being annoying. <laughs> just do what I want you to do. I just want to go home tonight, okay? But I don't know. They just left me unsatisfied. Yeah,
0: that tells you there might be a genetic yeah, right? Something And different. I thought, okay, you? well,
2: this is gonna get complicated. But I need to do some more training. <laughs> yep. And I was super fortunate to work with Willa Revere, and then sort of another smaller postdoc for my last year at Pittsburgh with Jerry Gebhardt, which is where I really got excited about visceral pain. I hadn't worked in that before, but they had an amazing group there. I sort of have been really fortunate to just be interested Mm. in a general area. and then Yeah, and to be able to ask questions about it, and to be, I mean, I won't say I'm real good at at the possibility of an experiment not having some sort of outcome, but even an outcome that doesn't support your hypothesis is an outcome, right? So every single time you do something, it tells you something about the way the world works. And once you, start to accept that and to think okay even if I'm not right which whoo I don't know what that's <laughs> like problem. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah right <My laughs> yeah
1: like... always come out,
2: <laughs> <laughs> right so even if you're not right in the beginning you can still find out a truth mm-hmm. and that to me is the exciting part I mean it sounds so romantic or whatever you know but it's like every single day our job is to figure out the truth about the way the world works and our little small piece and that's <laughs> it's so awesome. It is, Yes. Yeah. It's so
0: pretty cool. Awesome. It's almost more fun when your hypothesis turns out to be not true. Right. right? Yeah. When it's the unanticipated, yeah. the unexpected result.
2: And I have more often seen study outcomes than I go, huh? Yeah. <laughs> That's weird. As opposed to, eureka, like, I've mm-hmm. solved the entire world. It's more often, okay, that doesn't make any sense. That that can't be, huh. Okay, well, maybe I asked the question incorrectly. And so then you you go back and you ask it again, and it turns out the same way, and you're like, oh. For heaven's sake so I think we've both had the experience where something doesn't quite go the way we planned and yet becomes something really interesting anyway because yeah. it's the answer sometimes I feel like we're in the matrix where they say <laughs> it's the question that drives us but that's the thing yep. you know it's not the answers it's really it's about the questions
0: so before we sign off what fun stuff Happens in the bombay young household when you guys are not doing any
1: work. <laughs> no, is it always terrible.
0: work? Work twenty four seven?
1: Sleep. <Yeah. laughs> we, we have two beautiful little girls that we spend most of our waking time with. Trying to corral them. Yeah, trying to <laughs> herd some cats, <laughs> and they're a real experience. And so they have a lot of fun. So we try to do as much as we can to take them out to do fun things. Mm-hmm. And so now my oldest daughter is interested in fishing, and that's the thing I love to do the most. And so. We're learning that, and um, lacrosse. She loves lacrosse. I never played lacrosse, so we try to do a lot of that, and basketball, and so they're athletic, and we, you know, just small things. Go to the movies.
2: Mm -hmm. um. There's an article that just came out, I think, recently. It was in the New York Times, I want to say, but that could be wrong, that I read on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) That actually said that for parents where there's two working parents, the most important thing is not that the parents never work at home, it's that their children know that they come first right, right that they're a priority mm-hmm. and so I was like oh thank God because we do have to work at home sometimes and we try to mask that a little bit by mm-hmm. one of us taking the kids to do something fun while the other one feverishly types at the computer but- and we switch that off but we try to do that we try to prioritize having some time where your brain is turned off because I actually find I can't do this whole research thing if I don't have time where my brain shuts off so I need to well, you need it I have to do something yeah. else in order to better be able to think about what I'm mm-hmm. like, I need some space from it. Right. And sometimes you're not good at that, right? Like you want to just think, you think, if I just think about this harder and write about this more. It's right. going to make more sense. But I have found, especially in the last few years, because kids demand time, right? <laughs> they, yep. they won't let you off the hook. Mm-hmm. They're like, I don't care if you're tired or have a deadline. I found that I do better, that I can work more efficiently when I have a little bit of mental space. Sure. So.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, What is, is today, what day are we in? Wednesday? It's Wednesday. Wednesday. Uh, So today we might go to uh, the trampoline park. Nice. You go jump around and get pizza for a few hours. Mm -hmm. Because
2: tired kids are the best (laughs) behavior. We've learned that. That's the secret. Yeah, right, yeah. If they're exhausted and asleep, they do not complain about anything.
1: The things that we used to do as hobbies, and we used to have separate... We had our life together, and then our life that was separate, and we did different things for hobbies and fun. But now that's become more of... Our hobby is our kids mm-hmm. and really interacting with them and playing with and them. Trying and
2: trying to find someone else to watch them. I mean, yeah. that's really. Leaving I, them at somebody tankers, else's house. If you guys are interested. <laughs> we'd be happy to come back if you're willing bring to bring them to the, the lab. Kids. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> no, that, actually, my uh, oldest daughter, when she was um, about four, started learning how to do electrophysiology.
0: I was going to ask. two no future way. scientists. Yeah. No. She.
1: Oh, yeah. We would. Uh, so where we worked it was just down the street from where her daycare was. And there were some nights that I couldn't get out. I came in very early to start mm-hmm. doing the work, and normally Aaron would take her to daycare, and then I would go pick her up. But there were some nights I couldn't do that. And so Aaron would go pick her up, and then bring her up to the lab. And so it started off with, Daddy, what are you looking at? And so she would look through a microscope, and I told her I'd, I'd identify neurons. And so she could pick out neurons, and we would use them for gene expression profiling. And then we had all of our electrophysiology rigs hooked up to speakers, and so you could hear the neurons fire. and she would say, Daddy, what what are they saying? And I would say, Baby, they're mad. <laughs> <laughs> not happy. Well, what do you think they're saying to me? And, well, since you came in the room, they said, You're so beautiful. And then, <gasps> Can can I look? Sure, she would look at the preparation. Mm-hmm. Oh, can I do the recording? And so she figured out. Wow. And I taught her how to poke around and get in the cells, and she could record and do the characters, and poke, you know, skin to see how the neuron fires. So at four and five years old, she was doing electrophysiology. That's that is incredible. That's wild. She's yeah, It is. <laughs> And, but we've told game. her never to go into science <laughs> yes. no. oh really she, never you can be a cpa a physician uh There's something a more like direct
2: a, path yeah, to yes. like the actual employment
1: mommy part. and daddy need a retirement plan so <laughs> you just be wealthy please she,
2: she's actually interested in a right okay? Prior, hashtag priorities yes um she came home not too long ago That our younger daughter's three and a half so she she likes everything you know mm. she wants to do all of the things but our older daughter said you know mom we heard about a new job today at school and I was like really she said yeah it's called an architect it's like a mixture of art and math and I think that sounds really good and I was like that is yes that That has a paycheck yes (laughs) (laughs) but she you know she was like because then I could be a little bit I could make something that is strong but it's also you know beautiful and Mm -hmm. I was like oh you're best kid like well, you know. but yeah so um our younger daughter you know she wants to be doc mcsteffens at this point she's three and a half but she <laughs> just <laughs> wants
1: to tear everything down yes. <laughs> yes.
2: Right. but yeah the one thing i will say to you guys is how long do you have in your programs are you in the hope we just started the yeah design? we're still in the hope okay yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, it Good. ends faster than you think it will oh. um, i but can tell it comes you back. Uh-oh. It comes back. i had a lot of fun in graduate school um but as my career has progressed i've found enjoyment in different ways mm-hmm. throughout my career,
2: but... I don't think your liver can take the way you had fun in graduate school. No. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, can <laughs> no, no.
1: No. I think my liver took a hiatus <laughs> yeah. around the first two years of my postdoc. Um, no, I had a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed it. In some ways, that the memory of grad school is kind of magical and kind of like your childhood. You forget all the bad stuff. Mm-hmm. That so, you know, enjoy the ride. I tell everybody that most of us in this field... I guess everybody who's successful in their own fields, is goal-oriented. And you have your sight on, I need to get this thing. So you don't enjoy the ride getting to that thing. And I would say enjoy the process of where you're at, and Mm -hmm. you'll find that it's a lot more fulfilling than if you just worry about, I need to get the PhD in five years. Mm You know, Enjoy what you're doing in the moment. Be present in the moment. Because I can tell you, I wasn't. And uh, when you stumble on some things, you stub your toe, it becomes more difficult when you're frustrated uh, and you can't meet your goals. Don't have
2: such an intense feeling of time urgency. Like chances are you're going to live like another 75 or 80 years. So like- That'd be cool. So yeah, right? That'd be right. Yeah, right? right? No, no, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) You want to live another healthy 75 or 80 years, but like (laughs) we do, we talk about this, which sounds silly, but we'll, you know, I think, oh gosh, I wish I had been able to get over all the worry about what was going to happen in the future and been able to actually be in the moment. And some of that's about being type A, sorry, Um, or being goal oriented or being driven or whatever. But you know, it's really, I don't know, sometimes you can have drive and joy at the same time.
1: Yeah, and also if you're stressed out, your curiosity wanes. The thing that's gonna make you successful as a scientist is inherent curiosity. It doesn't matter if you're curious about the specific thing that you're doing. You should be curious about the world in general. And if you lose that, then what are you doing?
0: I think that's a nice way to wrap it up. Oh, yeah. 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 Thank you both so well, much for coming on and talking. Oh, gosh. Yeah.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having us.
0: This podcast is made possible by funding from the office of the provost and the office of the vice president for research. Thanks for listening.